are now listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. On today's program, I want to talk about being wide awake and uh, eyes wide open versus eyes wide shut. Now, you've heard me talk about that off and on recently a lot. And it comes from uh, the title of the film by director Stanley Kubrick entitled Eyes Wide Shut, which is his satirical way of saying instead of the people being having their eyes wide open and actually seeing what's going on in front of them, visually, biologically, they can see everything that's going on around them. But in a psychological sense, in a spiritual sense, they can't see anything. Because even though visually and biologically there's a physical reality that they can perceive in front of them, there's a disconnect, a, a cognitive dissonance, a separation between the people and what's actually going on. So he gives it the parody title, Eyes Wide Shut. Now, first and foremost, I strongly do not recommend that you see the film because you will be very offended, as I was. There's some very, very offensive scenes. And I waited a long time before I saw the film for that reason. Even though uh, the film deals with it's Stanley Kubrick's way of communicating to masses of people in America and around the world. Stanley Kubrick was, before he died, was one of the most critically acclaimed filmmakers ever. He was a genius when it came to filmmaking. His films were films like Barry Lyndon, uh, A Clockwork Orange, Eyes Wide Shut, um, The Shining, uh, Full Metal Jacket, and oh, of course, his classic when he first started his career, Dr. Strangelove, or, and this is the title, the title is Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned How to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Speaking of the atomic bomb, he's, he's being cynical, but it was a critique of what he perceived as the insanity of the military-industrial complex. So I would not recommend that you see uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and I know it's kind of unfair for me to reference it, but you will be offended, as I was. And I waited quite a long time before I saw it. Um, but finally, I had to see it because I couldn't keep talking about it and talking around it. So um, there are highly objectionable scenes in that film. Now, separating that, it is also a film which exposes uh, the Illuminati it exposes some of the rituals of the Illuminati, and that's where it becomes very vulgar and very explicit, because there's a scene shot uh, in one of the Rothschild mansions, the actual one of Rothschild, the super billionaire. The scene is shot in one of his numerous mansions, where the elite gather wearing masks and participate in certain rituals, which would be X-rated or very hard R-rated. Um, but he reveals, I mean, he is, he is, in a sense, sanitizing the, the full uh, disgusting nature of what goes on. And he exposes the Illuminati and their power. And, you know, he, he uh, exposes uh, child sex trafficking, which is a hideous crime, but the role that the elite play in child sex trafficking. And so he's communicating a message to the audience. Now, I have, re I have uh, some ideas as to why he chose to cast Tom Cruise 
and Nicole Kidman in the leading role. But again, as I said on the Paul McGuire report uh, not, not that long ago, when he finally completed the film, I think it was Paramount Studios that, that released it. I'm not sure of that. Whoever the studio was, it was a major Hollywood studio. And when he submitted the film, all of his films are long. Uh, when he submitted the film, it was very explosive and it released. They, they didn't care at all about the explicit nature of the film. That was nothing to them. And this is not a justification for anybody to go see it. But um, in, in contrast with like what is being seen uh, on a daily basis in America on episodic television or whatever and other movies, it is in the spectrum of things. Um, it's not a complete negative. And I say that with great hesitation. Because there are negatives, and let's not let's not uh, be naive. Okay, so the point is, the, the major studio backing it, they didn't care about the explicit nature of the film. What they cared about was that he remove the truth that he had in the film, because it was too dangerous. It was getting too close to home. I mean, here he is, one of the most powerful directors in the world. So when he makes a movie. The critics see it. The papers talk about it. It has a huge splash and an echo chamber effect. And they know that. So they demand it, even though the contract, he always creates his film contracts with, uh, he has total control. But they they violated that. And they demanded that uh, he cut out a significant percentage of the film, which would have explained in more detail the the reality of these occult secret societies. And they didn't want that information out there. And you can figure out why. So um, it was at least 20 minutes of very important content that would have very clearly spelled out uh, even further what he was trying to communicate in Eyes Wide Shut. So uh, the film was uh, finally released after legal battles. And it was released um, with the 20 minutes cut out of it. That would give a clearer explanation. You know, this is a difficult thing to talk about because most of the time when Hollywood, well, a great deal of the time when Hollywood directors and writers, etc., put in explicit scenes, it's done for the deliberate, methodical exploitation of human nature that if they can titillate people, Uh, that they can get more box office dollars or more viewers on episodic TV. So they deliberately write into many screenplays explicit scenes which are not necessary at all, or that could be softened quite uh, quite a bit. But that's just the nature of Hollywood. I know because I was in the Hollywood film business uh, as the executive producer of a number of feature films. And these were like low-budget films, like like uh, Road Warrior, which was the, the first Mel Gibson film that made him a star. And so I remember shopping around our film, showing these uh, studios and distributors uh, the trailer of our film. And I can't say it was the greatest film in the world, because it certainly wasn't, but I didn't write it. My, my job was to do other things. I didn't have creative control over the film. But the film was rated R. And the, the, there was no sexuality in the film. 
And so here we are in the genre of kind of like sci-fi apocalyptic horror of the future. And what's ironic about the film that, that I made along with the person uh, that you probably know was that uh, the film was embedded with subtle messages like pro-life messages, like pro-family messages. But it wasn't done in the traditional way where like you wave a flag and, and, and you call attention to it. It's just there. And and the fact that the, the lead characters, and by the way, I, I should have given a heads up warning uh, for the content right now. So I apologize for that. But we are going to talk uh, for the next couple of minutes about films and communication and television. And there will be some uh, material that I don't think is suitable for young children or people, uh, children at different ages. So I apologize that I didn't warn you right up front. I usually try to do that. But I am giving a warning now. So let's continue knowing that. And I will be as delicate and diplomatic as possible. In any case, our film, our film contained the, the film was about two young people in the future who had to fight uh, to survive in a vicious world. Now, this is the irony. The film came out years before the pandemic and COVID. Yet it says in the in the opening like statement of the film, it gives the year at that time it was in the future, and it talks about how a deadly virus and a deadly pandemic called Tapex um, you know killed off millions of people, and so what was left was like an apocalyptic America where the survival of the fittest was occurring because of this pandemic. This, this biological warfare that wiped everybody out, which wiped out society. And that's odd that that, that happened because it was, I'm not saying it was, well, it was prophetic and it was predictive. Now, the, the two leading people in the film, a guy and a girl, a romantic couple, they have a relationship where there is no overt sexuality on the screen. Now, you may say that's no big deal. It's a huge deal in Hollywood. Because when I was taking the film around, when I was shopping the film around, and there was a period, I'm very, uh, by the grace of God, whatever I do, uh, whatever I commit myself to, given whatever parameters or constraints I might have, or given whatever limitations I may face, I always give uh, a thousand percent or more to what I'm doing. And I am diligent. That scripture, the, the diligent shall bear rule. That's a principle that all of us, if you're diligent, you will rule. It's a principle that God has instituted in life. If you're not uh, diligent, you will be a slave. It's a pretty simple, and by the way, God is not just going to like miraculously and supernaturally zap you and bless you. You're going to have to work. So being diligent is something that. My father taught me, and it's something that the Bible taught me. So I literally shopped our film around after we, we uh, shot it, and it was edited, and we had a trailer. And I shopped it around, and I had meetings or lunches or private meetings with just about anybody who was anybody in terms of power in Hollywood. Because everybody in Hollywood, you say, well, how, how, could, how could that be? Well, you'd have to have been there. Everyone in Hollywood 
knew about the film. It was the talk of the town. And that, and this is not bragging, it's just a fact, that was my doing. Because I began promoting and producing contemporary Christian music concerts at the Lambs Club on Times Square. And that, um, I don't want to use the word evolve, but that did evolve into different careers, promoting films, producing films, et cetera, et cetera. So I met with a huge number of people, some who were, the, the, were famous and powerful back then when I met with them, and a larger number of them. I had face-to-face meetings uh, with the people who you could call the kings of Hollywood. They are the kings of Hollywood today. And I'm not going to get into what I did to promote the film, but we received enormous press coverage in the Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety, front page story after front page story, which I orchestrated. And we had a huge turnout because I mailed all this part, I'll tell you, I mailed out color postcards. Uh, I had uh, my assistant assemble a computerized list of and anybody who was anybody in terms of potential distribution or acquisition of our film, studio heads and then the smaller independents and anybody who was anybody. They got in the mail personally addressed to them a poster of our movie, the full color poster, but it was on a postcard size. Now that may not sound like a big deal, but nobody else did it. And so it attracted enormous attention. And in that postcard that I sent out, which was a full-color poster of the movie, was a personal invitation to come to the Academy of Motion Pictures, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences uh, in Hollywood, the big auditorium where they, they would preview you know, the big films in Hollywood. And I packed it out. We literally limousines pulled up, limousine after limousine. Uh, you know, people were wearing tuxedos and stuff. And I packed it out. We had to turn people away. The problem was I got them there, but the film was not that great. And I would say uh, the weakness, as it is with most films, is always in the writing or the lack of character development. And you know what? There's no shortcut to that. So in any case, that's, that's spilled milk. So the point is, by being diligent, I exposed the film to all these people. And this is the response I got. Yes. The film could have been better. There's no question about that. I'll be the first one to admit that. But they were some of them that specialized in the release of these action, adventure, sci-fi, road warrior type movies, you know. They literally came out and asked me, a number of them, how come there's no sex in the movie? You know, how come, how come, why don't you have any scenes where, where, the, where the girls or whatever are topless? And even though there was a strong violence in the film, it was a violence that was um, held in check to whatever degree. But they would just, these distributors and these studios, the big ones and the small ones, just flat out, it's part of the formula. They expect that you put in uh, sex, nudity, violence, and, and it's a negative in terms of the formula they use when they're going to acquire a film. So people say, well, it wasn't a Christian film. It wasn't supposed to be a Christian film. It was supposed to be a secular film. But in, in so many areas, it contained an embedded Christian worldview. And it, that is not welcome. So in any case, you do what you can do. Now, uh, back to Stanley Kubrick, which obviously we're talking about a whole different league 
a whole different class of film directing and writing. You know, he is an artist. And he also was an insider to these occultic secret societies. And so it's clear from, uh, and I talk, I, I, I talk about this in my book, uh, The Greatest Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Mankind in the History of the World and A Prophecy of the Future of America, uh, one and two. And uh, Kubrick, and, and I talk about it in Power from on High. So Kubrick, formerly an insider, uh, it was Arthur C. Clarke who wrote 2001, A Space Odyssey, that Kubrick directed. That was probably his greatest film, his most renowned film. And, but Kubrick was an insider. And so in his films, if you understand the symbols, if you understand the esoteric messaging that he's capturing, if, in other words, if, you've, if you're up to speed, you're going to get the message that he is delivering. And he's telling you stuff that most people don't know. He's risking his life to tell you this, because I can only surmise that his conscience bothered him a great deal. Whatever he was involved in was dark and very, very evil. And it revolved around the most powerful people in the world. And so he's telling you in movies like The Shining, he's telling you things about the Apollo space program. And he's telling you through symbols and things like that, but he's, he's revealing hidden truths. He's bringing them to light. And he does the same thing in The Shining. He does it in uh, Dr. Strangelove. He did it in Full Metal Jacket. He talked about programming uh, and mind control of the population. When I saw A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick's film, about behavior modification, it was a sci-fi film, but it was telling the world about the reality and the darkness of scientific mind control and behavior modification. And I saw that in, 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 while I was attending the University of Missouri. I went to the movie theater and saw a clockwork orange. So he, he, was, he was doing what Christians should have been doing, bringing to light the hidden works of darkness so they could be disarmed. And uh, then his other movies, like The Shining, I said, 2001, A Space Odyssey, is revealing a whole lot uh, about what the occult theology is of the people that currently rule planet Earth. And that would be like the people who are in control of the Great Reset, etc. And the people I've been talking about uh, who met at Jekyll Island and things of that nature. So then in uh, Eyes Wide Shut, he reveals it even further. And that is probably the first big, massive budget, big Hollywood film with massive major distribution uh, with two huge stars directed and, and written by one of the most prestigious and successful filmmakers in Hollywood, Stanley Kubrick. And, and what he is communicating to the world through that movie, Eyes Wide Shut, he's saying, hey, folks, wake up. Wake up. The world you live in is nothing like you think it is. You're living in a land of illusion, and your reality is being manipulated by very, very powerful and very, very super wealthy globalist elite occult secret society families 
who know how to manipulate reality in multiple dimensions. Kubrick knows about this stuff. And by the way, so did Arthur C. Clarke, who I write about in my books, like A Prophecy of the Future of America and Power from on High. Arthur C. Clarke also was aware, and uh, I'm certain, at least I believe, that he was involved in these secret occult societies. I don't want to talk about things that I know about his life that would reveal, in, in Arthur C. Clarke's case, it would reveal even further a confirmation of, of that perception of mine. Things he was involved in, which are a signal and a flag that he was involved in these occult secret societies. And you have to, and so so Kubrick in his movies is telling the whole world, he's saying, wake up. Your reality is not what you think it is. Your nation is not what you think it is. You live in a controlled system, and it's controlled by very powerful uh, occult secret societies, of which the wealthiest and richest and most powerful people in the world are involved in these secret societies, such as the Illuminati. And what he's what what is offensive in the film, Eyes Wide Shut, is is he shows you. Uh, to to a limited degree, he's showing you what these people are into, what their normal is, and it's very very dark, especially when through symbols, through through the actors, etc., he exposes the reality of child sex trafficking in the elite secret societies and uh, human adult sex trafficking in the secret societies, and he he shows you how how. And I'm being very careful not to be offensive. He shows you how, after this elite occult group, they meet and the rituals that they're involved in in the in the in the Rothschild mansion. And then he shows you that when they have a problem with one of the young women that is kind of a well, it's a, she's a sex slave for for this occult group, and when she becomes a problem. They simply kill her off. And he's showing you that. He's showing you the reality of uh, orchestrated evil in our society. And Christians should be doing that. Now, to follow that up, I've heard interviews with his daughter, who confirms as much, people who knew him that confirms as much. And then I've seen photographs of Stanley Kubrick walking on what appears to be a studio lot and Arthur C. Clarke, the, the screenwriter of 2001 Space Odyssey, famous sci-fi novelist, as well as he is Sir Arthur C. Clarke. He's been, he was made a knight uh, by the Queen of England. And he's also the inventor. He's a scientist. He was the inventor of satellite technology. But he was involved in that, that spiritual darkness. Uh, and that's not just my opinion. That comes from many, many sources. and so. When you go back in time, the, the Shining was basically written originally by Stephen King, the uh, horror novelist. And Stephen King has been accused many times by certain people. They allege that he knows a whole lot more about secret occult societies and mind control and uh, the occult. And they suggest that perhaps this is their allegations. They suggest that perhaps Stephen King, the horror novelist, is is an insider 
to whatever degree. And so Kubrick uh, was making the film, The Shining, which originally Stephen King, the horror novelist, owned. But some people feel it was ruthless. But Kubrick took the the screenplay that that, uh, Stephen King had written on The Shining, and he seized control over the project, and he significantly rewrote The Shining, and he used The Shining to communicate, in my opinion, to communicate a far deeper, a far more powerful message, because he exposes the link between these occult secret societies, the occult Nazis that came to America uh, under uh, Operation Paperclip, Nazis like Werner von Braun, who, despite the, the efforts to sanitize him, he was a Nazi. He was involved in enslaving Jews and others. He used the, the concentration camps that the Nazis built in Germany, and he organized this. He was an evil genius, Werner von Braun. He, by the way, became the head of NASA, and he appeared on television as the, spokes, the national spokesperson for NASA, and he would appear on television with Walt Disney. And so when he was uh, in Germany, he was uh, a dedicated member of the Nazi. He was a high-ranking Nazi, uh, high-ranking in the occult, occult rituals. And what he did, and, and this is an area that I talked to you about before, um, there are many times in my life, first of all, my basic foundation is always to be diligent, to do my homework, to gather the facts, to study, to use the intellect that God has given me, and then to perceive and analyze whatever it is God is leading me to analyze, to to analyze it from a biblical worldview. That is my foundation, always. It's a rule that I live by. But in addition to that, as a Christian, like many of you are, the Holy Spirit lives inside me, and when you walk with the Lord, after a while, the Lord may uh, inform you that that there are certain fruits of the Spirit that you possess. Uh, we all possess fruits of the Spirit, but certain ones you may possess, like love, pure spiritual love, at a higher level than other people. It's the same thing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, every one of God's people, whether you believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit or not, you have been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the question is that the power and the availability and the energy that God will pour into certain gifts of the Holy Spirit, let's say like supernatural faith, or the gift of healing, or a word of wisdom, or a word of knowledge, or many different other things. In certain people's lives, God will supernaturally amplify specific gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in my life, and this is not for the purpose of bragging, because God has done the same thing in every one of your lives, God will lead me supernaturally to research, study in certain areas. God will lead me and direct me. And what this does is this gives me a supernatural ability to perceive, analyze, and understand, and gain access to to what could be called secrets, because 
I'm not simply relying totally on my intellect, although that's the key foundation, and the Word of God, and that's the key foundation. But God will supernaturally guide me and lead me and show me things. You know, like the super soldiers, and that's a real thing. Our military has been developing super soldiers in many branches of the military. Some of this rubbed off from the Nazis, and a lot of it came from certain occult areas. So you have to be very careful. But that doesn't necessarily mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, for example, super soldiers are taught uh, certain ones, depending upon their innate abilities, things like remote viewing. Remote viewing is like a form of mental telepathy or ESP, where you can see via a supernatural means where the enemy is, where they may be hiding bombs, where they may be building dangerous rockets, uh, all kinds of things, where terrorists may be at a particular time and location. You, you are, when you remote view, you are tapping into what some people consider occult power, what other people consider in, uh, intuition. Now, I have touched on this in my books, and I've spent a lifetime studying it. It's not easy to communicate to people who aren't up to speed because they, they come away with the wrong idea. But I am of the conviction, and have been for decades, that whenever you hear about some kind of supernatural ability that is being used by, let's say, in the military, by super soldiers, or by this group, or that group, I am convinced that God doesn't shortchange his people. In other words, supernatural powers, such as the ability to remote view, or ESP, or mental telepathy, are things that I personally experimented with when I was studying altered states of consciousness at the University of Missouri. So it's something I have had firsthand experience in. But after I was saved, I was born again, forgiven of my sins, and delivered from all occult ties and all cords to the supernatural or the occult. I was supernaturally delivered by the power of God or the power of the Holy Spirit. But again, I am of the conviction God never shortchanges his people. So I don't have to rely on remote viewing or ESP or mental telepathy. I believe God has given Christians, those that endeavor to walk in his word, those that endeavor to obey the Holy Spirit, those that endeavor to uh, walk in the presence of the Lord, those that endeavor to develop the gifts of the Holy Spirit, God has given his children, his people, specific spiritual gifts that I believe from firsthand experience are far more powerful than remote viewing, ESP, or mental telepathy. If you know how to pray properly and seek God, God will give to his children this far higher level, uh, far higher level spiritual gifts which give you access to supernatural power and supernatural revelation that vastly exceeds, let's say, remote viewing, mental telepathy, or ESP. Because you see, a lot of that is connected to psychic power. A lot of the people who pioneered certain programs uh, for the military were not only highest-level scientists, but they were also highest-level occultists. Some were actually 
had completed L. Ron Hubbard, the, the founder of Scientology's, uh, you know, he, he developed a program called the Bridge to Clear. And becoming clear in L. Ron Hubbard's definition in Dianetics and his other books is a very hard thing to do. Now, certain clears like Ingo Swan, and there's another gentleman, but I, his name escapes me at the moment. But both of them were clears under L. Ron Hubbard's system of Scientology. And both of them were involved in psychic power, ESP, remote viewing, etc., etc. And both of them were leaders in, in the super soldier program and other what they call black ops programs. Now, again, I, I believe that God gives his people, if they will seek his face and not, and God has to be able to trust those individuals, God will give his people, and it's in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, specific supernatural powers that function at a more powerful, far more accurate, and higher level than these psychic, occult, sorcery-based psychic weapons, like remote viewing and mental telepathy, etc. And that can come to you supernaturally by prayer. So what I'm trying to say is, when I do my research, I cannot tell you how many times in my life that from what appears to be the middle of nowhere, and it's not the middle of nowhere, where it's actually coming from is God and Jesus Christ, God will supernaturally reveal things to me that I couldn't possibly know through just relying on my human mind, research, and logic. There are so many cases where God has supernaturally revealed to me the location of certain things, where he arranges for me to meet with certain people who are very high level in certain areas and certain things that I don't feel comfortable discussing. But God can do that if you seek his face. Now, some of this is the development of intuition. And you've got to be careful here, because intuition can easily slide into the area of psychic power. But if you're walking with the Lord, if you're renewing your mind with the Word of God, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit and God is leading you, and it is the Word of God which is above all things, then God will supernaturally lead and guide you. And so, for example, in all of my books, I never leave the reader. I write in a fast-moving, popular style, but I never leave the reader bankrupt or lacking in spiritual power or spiritual gifts. I always emphasize how God's plan for his people is to be overcomers and supernaturally victorious. And again, God is not cheap and stingy. God does not shortchange his people. And then so I explain this in, for example, A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1, which is intense. It's intense like you wouldn't believe. And it's been plagiarized like you wouldn't believe, but at least the message is getting out. And then in Volume 2 of A Prophecy of the Future of America, I talk about specifically from the Bible how God historically has given key people supernatural powers so that they could compete and be victorious and overcomers in environments of the highest levels of power. And when they had to compete with hundreds of the world's most powerful sorcerers, magicians, alchemical magicians, clairvoyants, uh, forms of ESP and mental telepathy, uh, uh, psychic powers, 
when you look at the historical record of the prophet Daniel, or the historical record of Joseph in Egypt, or the historical record of many other people in the Bible, what you see, if you read it properly, if you rightly divide the Word of God, you see that Daniel, God's hand is supernaturally on Daniel's life. And God, after a season of intercessory prayer warfare, the kind that I teach, the kind that we were practicing at Paradise Mountain Church, and I want to renew that very soon, because July 4th is coming up. And I want you to pray about that right now. July 4th will be here before you can blink. And I want to pass on to as many people as I possibly can the need for us to gather together as one in the Spirit and engage in high-level spiritual warfare for America and the world as we have never done before. We need to enter into the highest level uh, spiritual warfare that we have ever done in our lifetime, because the stakes are global and national, and if things go south, it's going to bring about the, the, the uh, equivalent of a holocaust in America and around the world. You hear what I'm saying? I'm not playing around here. I didn't just use those words because I couldn't think of other words. And the negative fallout upon you, your children and grandchildren, or however long it will be until the Lord comes, will be at the level of a human extinction level event. Now, God wants to deliver his people. God wants to give us a biblical revival and a biblical third great awakening. He gave me a vision, and I don't glibly throw around the word vision, as you may know. Um, I said I've had only one vision in my life, and then I realized, no, I've had a number of visions in my life. And I shared one uh, recently. Uh, you know, when you share certain visions, you know you're going to get attacked, but from within the body of Christ and without. But my, my intention is always to basically damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. That's my theology, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. And so when I was talking to Doug Hagman, who graciously had me on his program for like, we did an interview that lasted like, I don't know, it was about four and a half or five hours. And he, he, he broke it into three segments, three days on his show, the Doug Hagman show, uh, or Hagman Private Investigator website. And uh, because of our friendship, because of the fact that we've worked together and he knows where I'm coming from, and I know where he's coming from. But the Lord t told me, within the context of that program, I was relaying how I had received power from on high, what really happened to me in New York City, in the library of the church of, at the Lambs Club on Broadway and Times Square. And I've written about this in greater detail in my book, Power from on High. And as I was sharing this to Doug Hagman over the air, um, I was giving the short version of what happened uh, and how the, that, how the power of God came down upon me uh, after I was fasting and praying and seeking the Lord in a biblical manner. And I shared over the air the short version of how I found myself literally bowing at the feet of Jesus because Jesus, I was like I was teleported somewhere. I can't give you a, 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 a definitive definition of where I was geographically. 
in terms of the spiritual realm, the physical realm, a, a psychological like movie that God plays in your head, a vision. I can't tell you. It seemed like I was transported into the spiritual realm, or it could have been a vision. But you see, I don't get hung up on that because my goal is not to brag. My goal is to obey the Lord. So anyway, what happened was the room disappeared, and the next thing I know is that Jesus is standing in front of me. Now, I cannot, I cannot see the face of Jesus crystal clear, because what I see is the most pure, powerful, supreme being that I have ever encountered in my entire life. I'm encountering the supreme being, the biblical God of the universe, and he doesn't allow me to see his face unveiled. All I can see is this, this glory, this indescribable brightness of light, which I can only describe or define as the glory of God. And Jesus is in front of me, and I'm not trying to be religious, I'm not trying to do something spiritual. I'm overwhelmed by the glory of God and, and the fact that Jesus is standing in front of me, yet I cannot clearly make out his face. So what I do, like it's like I, I not to be religious, I just when you're in front of God Almighty, you can do nothing less than what I did, which is I immediately bowed before God, before Jesus. And when I bowed before Jesus in the library at the Lambs Club, I could see his sandals and I could see his feet. And as I'm looking down at the feet and sandals of Jesus Christ, again, it's like it's an automatic thing. I can't help myself. I begin to weep with tears and sob because when you're in front of Jesus Christ, uh, that's all you can do. You fall apart, okay? The experience is so overwhelming, it's beyond the sensory overload. So I'm weeping at the feet of Jesus. And so tears are running down my face. Simultaneously, God is baptizing me with his Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, I am being filled with power from on high, supernaturally. And so, at this point, all I'm doing is looking at the feet of Jesus Christ, and I can see the tears running down my face, and the tears coming from my eyes, literally splashing on the feet of Jesus Christ. Because I see his feet, I see the sandals, and then I see my tears hitting his feet. And as this happens, there is a total surge of the presence of God, the power of God, the glory of God, and the love of God. And that's all I can do. I mean, it's impossible for me to verbalize what happened, because what happened to me was so supernatural that I have, uh, there's a limitation on my human vocabulary. It is outside of my ability to describe it linguistically and verbally. So I'm doing the best I can, knowing it's imperfect. And so I'm filled with power from on high. And so after worshiping the Lord, the pastor in the room is worshiping the Lord. And there's tears in my eyes. And I don't like to cry in front of people. Uh, I was getting weepy on Doug Hagman's show. And you know me. I'm a very private person when it comes to emotions like most men are. And I lock those things shut. Most people never see that. But in those rare occasions where the Lord will say, I want you, as he did on the Hagman show, but before I shared what happened to me when, when I was at the feet of Jesus in the library of the church, I had a distinct prompting of the Lord, a distinct command by the Holy Spirit that I was to share um, how I was filled with the Holy Spirit and how the power of God filled me. And uh, the, the whole, I was supposed to share over the radio on Hagman's show, 
I was supposed to share kind of a replay of what happened to me. Now, when I know that God is speaking me to do that, I have purposed in my heart that I will obey God, knowing full well it's going to cost me, knowing full well that a lot of people don't want to hear that, and yet I must obey him anyway, because I am a soldier in the peaceful, loving, and law-abiding armies of the living God. And I'm a soldier and a warrior in the armies of the living God. And when my supreme commander, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, commands me to do something, you do it. You don't argue. You don't justify. You just radically obey him and step out on faith and let the chips fall where they may. Now, as I began sharing this over the air with Hagman, Doug Hagman, uh, I, you could hear the emotion and the tears in my voice. I mean, I was doing everything I could to, to not let the dam of emotion just break open. But I knew that because I was willing to be transparent, because I was willing to get out of the way and let God move and not, not manipulate myself into some position through political manipulation, but just let it all hang out, which I did, I knew that the power of God would come down, and I knew that this would break a chasm open in a spiritual stronghold wall in the invisible realm. Because I'm very aware, painfully aware of this fact after researching, studying, and I've been around the block both in the secular world and I've been around the block in the spiritual world and in the Christian world. And the reason that so many Christians today, of whatever age group, are reluctant and suspicious and uh, uh, not friendly towards the, the genuine move of the power of the Holy Spirit is because... They have accurately seen this abused. They've seen the power of God merchandised and manipulated by not all television evangelists, but a certain percentage of television evangelists and ministers who have man manipulated uh, and, and have kind of turned the power of God and the move of God into like a three-ring circus. So there's a lot of people who are open to the authentic power of God if they see it, but they are not open. They're highly resistant to, you know, some kind of excessive emotional, you know, three-ring circus. So I knew by entering this territory that, you know, this is, this is not something you do for political gain. You do it because God wants you to do it. And I knew that if I did that, whatever the cost, I knew that if I did that, that God, what God spoke to me deep in my heart long before I began the interview with Doug Hagman, I knew that it would break open a crack in the dam or a crack in the wall of strongholds. Remember, a stronghold is defined as a satanically energized argument that has been raised against us by the principalities and powers. And a stronghold often exists because of sin, like turning things into a three-ring circus, or uh, attitudinal sins, or unbelief. There's so many reasons. The devil will exploit any raw material you allow him to get his hands on. And so I knew that if I obeyed God, whatever heat that I might take would be inconsequential to the fact that if I opened up what happened to me and attempted to be transparent about power from on high and being filled with power from on high in an intelligent, authentic, and biblical way, that this, in part, in part with God moving to many other people in many other locations, that this in part would help 
drive the, the supernatural body of Christ in America, it would help drive the supernatural body of Christ in America further towards the destination point, which is to ignite or activate by pulling down the satanic strongholds by genuine repentance and by the exercise of genuine biblical faith, it would release the power of God or the dunamis dynamite power of God, and it would open up a portal, if you will, by blowing open with the dunamis dynamite power of God. It would blow open the walls that Satan has erected between God's people and this spiritual battle we're involved in. And the dynamite power of God, the dunamis, would explode, and the wall would be blown open. And then the power of God would not be constrained or bound up. It would be released through God's people, and it would begin to ignite gradually and incrementally, step by step. It would begin to ignite an authentic, biblical Third Great Awakening and an authentic, biblical uh, uh, revival. And as I said earlier, this only has to happen within 1% of the body of Christ for it, effect, for it to affect massive and exponential change. Okay, so that's why I did that. Now, the people who are serving Lucifer, and this is what Director Stanley Kubrick was trying to bring out, they understand sometimes far better than the, 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 children, of, the children of darkness, the Bible says, Sometimes, I'm paraphrasing, the children of darkness sometimes know better than the children of light about the, the power of God and the things, the laws of the universe that can be manipulated and reconfigured. The Bible says, so for, for the children of darkness are often wiser in their generation. Their generation is this temporal lifetime on earth. The children of darkness are wiser, are often wiser uh, in their generation where Lucifer has temporary control over the earth, than the children of light. That's not what God wants, but that's what happens through unbelief and, and allowing a religious spirit to dominate your mind and to dominate the body of Christ, versus sound doctrine and biblical faith. Okay, so the, the key thing here is that Kubrick is revealing how these people at the top of the pyramid the Illuminati, the, the heads of the secret societies, the occult, they perform rituals, rituals like sacrifice and stuff like that and other rituals, release supernatural power from the demonic realm. But in, in, a, in a superior manner, when we exercise authentic biblical faith, when we sync up with God's word, like in Deuteronomy 28, we open the doors in the spiritual realm or the invisible world, or the release of a far more intense visitation of God's supernatural power into the earth through his people. You understand what I'm saying? So going back to Daniel, Daniel was in intercessory prayer warfare for the children of Israel. Nothing happened in the earth realm that was at a standstill. Kind of reminds you of what's happening in America versus the powers of darkness today. Everything was like at a standstill. When Daniel was praying. Now, when Daniel began to engage in intercessory prayer using the biblical model, Daniel first began by repenting of his sins and repenting of the sins of God's people as an intercessor who was properly standing in the gap. That is how you release the power of God. You target the things that are important to God 
And where you're off key, you specifically repent on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ and yourself. You repent and you line up with the Lord properly. So when Daniel did that, it changed the direction of the spiritual battle that he was engaged in. All of a sudden, from the invisible world, from the supernatural realm, Daniel, as as he was engaged in intercessory prayer, was visited by the territorial ruling spirits, Michael and uh, Gabriel. So Michael, the chief archangel under God, Michael is also the highest-ranking angel under God, and Michael is directly responsible for many key territories, geographic territories on the earth, including the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. So Michael and the archangel Gabriel, two high, high high-level angels mentioned in the Bible, um, are engaged in uh, warfare in the invisible realm, and they, they are in conflict with the prince of Persia, uh, and they're in conflict with the prince of Grisha. Um, and so everything is kind of like jammed. Now, the minute Daniel begins to focus in specifically on strategic repentance, um, God begins to move. But God does not begin to move until there is that strategic repentance. So, uh, the prince of Persia and uh, the prince of Grisha are high-level, demonic, Luciferian territorial spirits that are under the command of Satan. And they were assigned to specific nations and territories as a way of opposing the plan and will of God and a way of opposing God's people, both the Jews and the Christians. And the Prince of Persia was responsible for attempting to manipulate the key political decisions of the kingdom that had been just that had just been chosen to release many of the Jews held in captivity. So the massive release of the Jews that were held in captivity, and the reason they went into captivity is because they were disobeying the Word of God, and especially disobeying the Word of God as it comes to the laws of the Sabbath. Now, this this blockage in the invisible realm, the change in direction of the spiritual battle, nothing happens until Daniel begins to focus in on the part of his intercessory prayer, which means repentance and seeking the face of God, regarding the specific things that are God's highest level priorities. So Daniel is repenting for the sins of God's people that got them taken into captivity to begin with. And he's repenting for his sins and the sins of God's people, the sins of God's people kind of rejecting the word, well, they were rejecting the word of God. So Michael and Gabriel communicate to Daniel that they were attempting to get to Daniel to answer his prayers as fast as they possibly could, but they were like frozen in time in the spiritual realm until Daniel began to wage targeted intercessory spiritual warfare. Once Daniel did that, that made it possible for the impossible to become possible 
the strongholds, the satanic strongholds were shattered. And now um, Daniel and Gabriel were supernaturally released to answer the prayers and fasting of Daniel. So Daniel is enlisted in the activities of the king of Babylon. And Daniel and the guys that are with him um, are chosen by the king of Babylon to be part of a special, let's just call it something that equates today. They're chosen, in, in effect, to be part of what today we might call a super soldier program. Because the program that Daniel has to go through is, is a high, high level program where he is going to be exposed and inundated with all kinds of occult teachings, all kinds of occult powers, all kinds of occult practices that would destroy most men and women of God completely. It would just fry them. They would just burn up. And yet God specifically equipped Daniel to, to be promoted, to move up the ranks in the world's most powerful occultic kingdom. And so he is in uh, he is getting trained along with the the high level sorcerers and clairvoyants and magicians and astrologers and uh, psychics and all these guys that have these heavy duty supernatural powers that there's over a hundred of them and these guys are not phonies because back then in ancient times if you were one of the occult advisors of of a king or a pharaoh or whatever or an emperor, if you were one of his key occult advisors, and if you gave him advice and it didn't come true or it was false, the price tag for you is you would be beheaded and you were killed. So these guys didn't play around. They were not fakes and phonies or they wouldn't have been there. They actually had the ability. What Christians need to know is that these people that had infiltrated the government of Babylon, these heavy duty occult advisors, were not phonies. They really could implement and harness all kinds of occult power. They could perform legitimate supernatural signs and wonders. Christians need to know that. And the proof of that is that if they uh, misinterpreted something, if they interpreted a vision falsely or failed to perform accurately some supernatural act, they would be immediately put to death by the king of Babylon. So this, this was not a neutral or soft environment that Daniel was in. Daniel was thrown in into the lion's den, literally, as he, as he related to these high-level occult advisors. Can you imagine? Before, he actually was thrown into the physical lion's den. And can you imagine the, the, the level of demons and principalities and powers and territorial spirits and fallen angels that w- would be literally moving through the rooms uh, moving through the teaching sessions that Daniel was involved in. When you're in the middle of a group of about 100 people that are dedicated to satanic power and are daily invoking supernatural powers, which means also invoking the entrance of principalities and powers and fallen angels and high-level demonic or territorial spirits, this is not, you know, playtime. This is not playing church time. You are in the center of the cyclone, and God anointed him, and, and Daniel was separated along with his colleagues. And so Daniel uh, was given favor in this hostile environment. Daniel kept to his diet 
that God told him to to follow. Daniel kept to his uh, uh, daily devotions, if you will. Daniel was praying to God every day. Daniel was fasting to God, the living God, the true God, every day. And Daniel was aware of the consequences of his messing up, but he relied upon God and God's power. And then God, finally, there came a time when the king of Babylon uh, was given a vision or a dream, and it, re- it was regarding the future. And none of the, of, of all the 100 superpowered occult advisors who, to use the language of today, could harness ESP and remote viewing and mental telepathy or interpret visions or, or generate psychic power and all the other supernatural things that they were capable of doing, uh, none of them could interpret either the vision or the dream that the king of Babylon had, which was regarding, it was the most definitive uh, vision or dream given to a secular emperor, the king of Babylon, perhaps in the history of all of mankind. Because it was, it was as if Daniel was given the ability to travel into time. That's the only way he could interpret the depths of the supernatural experience that the king of Babylon uh, received, uh, which declared the end from the beginning. It declared what was going to happen in the future. So what happened, all these, again, all these heavy-duty, high-powered, demonically possessed occult advisors, they could not interpret the prophetic dream that the that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had, and so King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with his occult advisors, and he gave him something like twenty four hours to come up with the interpretation of this prophetic dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, or he said he would kill all of them. So King Nebuchadnezzar, and this was common. This wasn't the, the, like King Nebuchadnezzar was like on some acid trip or something. The power and the authority. And this act of beheading and killing your advisors or people that failed you, that was a common practice in ancient times among emperors, heads of empires, kings, pharaohs, etc. This was not unusual. They had the authority and power to do that. So all of the 100 occult advisors were going to be killed within 24 hours unless they could accurately interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, everybody had forgotten about Daniel, because remember, Daniel had a long and winding road uh, that finally got him to be promoted to this high-level position in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel uh, was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he explained to King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the prophetic dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had about a huge statue, and that this huge statue prophetically represented the succession of different Gentile world empires that were going to arrive upon the scene both back then and in the future. So this this was a dream of of geopolitical magnitude and a dream that interpreted interpreted correctly the, the, the future history of mankind before it happened. And so the, what Daniel expri- explains to King Nebuchadnezzar is that this giant statue he's looking at, the first part of the statue was a prophetic revelation 
of the Babylonian Empire. And King Nebuchadnezzar just happened to be the head of the Babylonian Empire in which Daniel was interpreting his dream. And the, the part of the statue, the prophetic statue in the prophetic dream, was the Babylonian Empire was uh, made different than the rest of the body parts of the statue in that it was made of gold, solid gold, representing the fact that the Babylonian Empire was to be the most powerful and significant empire in human history, with the exception of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, in the last days, set up a thousand-year millennial reign, where Jesus Christ will rule and reign planet Earth as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the Babylonian Empire underneath God's rule, is the most powerful empire. And, and now think about how the Babylonian Empire connects to the Tower of Babel, to Mystery Babylon in Revelation. It's, it's loaded with occult symbolism, occult teachings, and occult power. And then after the Babylonian Empire, there will be, according to Daniel, interpreting the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Median Empire. And it was composed of silver, still very valuable, a very valuable metal. And then will come the Persian Empire, and it was represented by bronze, solid bronze. And then finally, there will be the coming of what is called the revived, uh, first there will be the coming of the Roman Empire, and then the revived Roman Empire. And this is composed, this is also called the Hellenistic Empire, and it is made out of iron, iron mixed with clay. And it's a last day's empire. It's, it's you know, the ten toes uh, re represents to many Bible prophecy scholars ten individual nations. Uh, okay, so Daniel tells uh, King Nebuchadnezzar the vital importance that God has given him personally and that God has given him as head of the Babylonian Empire one of the most important, significant parts in human history. And, as a result of this, Nebuchadnezzar, to whatever degree, is saved. Uh, he backslides, but he experiences salvation. And then, uh, the, all the occult advisors and King Nebuchadnezzar, the occult advisors are expecting, now that Daniel has correctly interpreted the dream, they're expecting to be slaughtered by King Nebuchadnezzar and his soldiers. Yet, in a highly, highly unusual manner, Daniel speaks up and asks that their lives be spared. Now, there's a, whole, there's a whole reason for that, but Daniel was very wise. So, this breakthrough, this, this reconfiguration of human history, this prophetic vision of the future is birthed through the spiritual warfare of, and the accurate prophetic gifts of Daniel. So, in my book, a Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1, and then specifically in A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 2, I go into further heavy-duty detail about both Daniel and the King of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, and I go into heavy-duty detail about Joseph being promoted to the right-hand man of Pharaoh in Egypt, the Pharaoh God-King, and I explain what I'm trying to share with you now is that God selected these men because they could trust him, and he, in his sovereignty, allowed them to live out their faith 
in incredibly hostile environments. But they didn't focus in on freaking out. They didn't focus in on a spirit of fear. They didn't focus in on a retreat mentality. They focused in on the Lord Jesus Christ, or they focused in on the revelation of the biblical God as they knew the biblical God in ancient history. They focused in on God. They focused in on God's laws. And God gave them a supernatural amplification and the ability to interpret visions and dreams. But God also supernaturally enhanced their ability to perform, enhanced their ability to manage, to create, to invent new structures, both militarily, uh, to to, uh, develop new organizational structures, new economic structures, new methodologies of feeding the people and expanding the wealth and feeding the people and heading off a drought of suffering. And and, uh, they headed off invasions by foreign enemies. I mean, they were bold. And the point I'm trying to make is, when God's people today, living in our contemporary world, are willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit and renew their minds with the Word of God, the Bible says, the righteous will be bold as a lion. And so you and I can expect in this present lifetime that we live in, to the degree that we rely on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, a boldness and a wisdom will come upon each one of us. It will come upon our children. It will come upon our ministries. So I invite you to step out of the, to step out of zombie land. I invite you to leave zombie land. The Exodus is here to leave zombie land and enter God's supernatural plan for the last days for you and your family, which is not built on fear, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And to the degree that we do that, we can realistically and biblically expect a sovereign move of God in our nation that will rock America. Our enemies, we should not be fearing our enemies. We need to be realistically uh, perceiving them, but we should only fear God, not our enemies. It's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I believe with all my heart that God has called you and I and everyone alive who's a true Christian to fulfill his plan and purpose in the last days. I ask that you join me personally, join me in accomplishing what our master is calling us to do. And I ask you to seek the Lord on behalf of yourself and your family and your loved ones and this nation. I ask you to pray for me, my family, and those associated with this ministry. I ask you to spread our message far and wide, spread the links far and wide, and sign up for the e-blast list and sign and like the various social media pages, and I ask you to seek the Lord regarding what he would have you give or donate or contribute to this ministry so that we can take the land and influence the land, America, that he's given us. Because we are not going to succumb to fear and the paralysis that fear uh, begets. We are going to move forward by faith and take the land, in good times or in bad times, in season or out of season. Thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your prayers and donations. And thank you for spreading the word. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. <laughs>